Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, and welcome to Between the Lines, the podcast that unfolds faded pages, deciphers the handwriting, and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written this same week in 1943, some 80 years ago. We followed the course of Operation Chastise closely, but the air raids at this time weren't confined to German dams. There were also assaults on cities such as Duisburg and Dortmund, where over 2,000 tonnes of bombs were dropped in one night alone. In fact, the British newspapers reported that Allied air crews flew over 5,000 sorties in the last seven days. And that's just in Central Europe. This attempt to interrupt the war machine was, of course, supported by a strategy that included plans for many other countries. To that end, Winston Churchill flew to Algiers this week. He wanted to convince General Eisenhower that a focused assault on Sicily should be followed by a push up through the boot of Italy. Let's start with a look at diary entries written by someone who's already stationed in the Mediterranean. We'll go to the west coast of Italy, to Marino, where we find Dr Wilhelm Maus, the chief medical officer for 14 Panzer Corps. Maus is hearing about his own troops' arrangements for Sicily, for the island of Sardinia, and also for a small town called Cassino. 22nd May, 1943. I spent the day in Marino. It is so typically Italian with its narrow alleys, its corners and stairs and its many dirty children, but it also spreads its charm in front of us. Our task seems to be getting clearer. We are to establish the divisions in Sardinia and Sicily, as well as supervise the mainland divisions. There is a large staff here, so troops must be coming from somewhere. 23rd May, 1943. This country is very distant from total war deployment as we know it. Young weapons-capable men are walking around, just like peacetime. I do not know if Italy could withstand a really heavy British attack. On the contrary, one has the feeling they would like to quit. The sooner the better. The English have probably recognised this attitude, but we have recognised it too. And so Germany stays. We are certainly not welcome guests, especially not within the Italian army. When one looks for military installations here, which could resist the entire into Rome, there is nothing. Absurd rolled barricades would make a grandmother laugh. What a difference to the Atlantic Wall, put up by us a few years ago. However, we do know we will be accommodated. We will relocate soon as the first section of the Corps staff is waiting at the German-Italian border. 24th May, 1943. A phone call from Casino. There are difficulties everywhere. Our confederates are using their stalling tactics again. General Hube spoke to General Fedmarschall Kesseling, and I know Kesseling has to handle every one of these brothers with velvet gloves. Early tomorrow morning, half of Feldarzret's section will be shipped over to Sardinia and to Sicily. At the end of the week, a medical company will follow for each island to Madaloni. 26 May 1943 The setup in Casino progresses slowly. No one trusts the Italians anymore. 
this notion continuously comes to mind. When it gets really serious, will they defect? Or even worse, will they stab us in the back? Mussolini and his supporters are loyal. But the others? We are just sitting on a barrel of powder, which can explode any second. However, these worries do not help. We have been assigned here to important positions by the Führer and have to do our duty. Here, we stand for Germany and for our German future. 28th May 1943 The biggest problem here is the Anglo-American Herero supremacy. We have nothing to match it. During the day, they risk very little. They have been over Reggio and Messina with about 175 aircraft. They just attack wherever they like. Today they attack Livorno. Oberstabarzt Dr. von Leth has returned from Germany today to take up a new assignment here. I talked with him for a long time. He reported that Oberstadt's Dr. Schulz has probably been taken into custody by the Americans. Speaking of ships, it looks as though Captain Bertie Packer has his hands full at the moment. There are no diary entries from HMS Warspite over the next few days. In fact, this is quite a quiet week all round. However, Bertie will be back imminently. He's just finishing a refit for his ship up in Scotland. Instead, let's go to the Middle East where we can catch up with Corporal Harry Wilson. As a newly trained cipher clerk, Harry's not exactly under a lot of pressure, but that doesn't mean he isn't looking forward to some well-deserved time off. He's got a few days leave, and it looks as though he's using it to take an impressive multicultural sights of Jerusalem. Saturday 22nd. Caught the morning train from Yak to Beirut. Damn glad to see the back of Core HQ. Joe was sorry to leave his pal Corporal French. I don't think he relished the idea of having me as a travel companion. Sunday 23rd. Came to Dorne and with it, lemon sunshine falling on citrus groves and patches of sand. The train ran down the valley of Zabloon and entered Haifa at 7.30. Immediately the Saifa quartet threw their kit out the window, stacked it on the platform and raced off to the naffy. From the transit camp we took the buses to the station where the RTO, a major, directed the travelling parties with masterly discretion. Finally, we pulled into Lydia at 4.30. Monday 24th. This YMCA hotel is a good place. Jerusalem is a YMCA stronghold. The building in Julian Way is the most famous of all the association establishments and its lofty tower is one of the city's chief landmarks. It ought to be good. It cost a quarter of a million pounds to build it. We reported to the cipher office at 5.30. We wouldn't be wanted for a couple of days and we were free to go where we liked. So we transferred from the YMCA to Allenby Barracks, a mile outside the city. Here we were told, go out when you like. No passes needed unless you're staying after 2am. You'll find this camp is okay. Okay wasn't the word for it. After a team went into the town to see they died with their boots on, the buses were too few and too crowded, so we walked back through the blacked-out city and out into the country. The film was a usual Yankee epic, and I slept my boots on. Tuesday 25th. The holiday didn't last long. Back to the office. Shift work. Wednesday 26th. Rather ill. Wandered round Jerusalem seeing nothing but spots before me eyes. On duty at 1pm the office was a larger one than a three core and there were several machines. Outside the book room there was a small office used for the duty cipher officer and two security typists, girls, British civilians resident in Jerusalem. 
their job was to type out the deciphered versions and stamp secret onto them. A good idea. I thought we could do with a few girls in three car. I was the only non-NCO, but I suffered no disadvantages on that account. I was royally treated and allowed to sign my own messages and take full responsibility for everything I did. Every half hour or so, somebody went out and brought back a tray full of teas and cakes, which were handed round to all. The work was heavy enough, but there seemed to be a lashing of time for refreshment and conversation. I like it like that. Thursday 27th. Health better. On duty most of the day. I prefer it that way. Friday 28th. Night duty. Cleared all the priorities by 4.15am, after which I went to sleep for two hours, Nobody objecting. Most of the messages came from England, India, Egypt and the British Embassy at Istanbul. And I've just heard that the four of us are being sent to Aqaba on some scheme. It's hot enough in Jerusalem at the moment without going to Aqaba. Someone else who's under the sun is RSM Jack Ward, still with the 56th Heavy Regiment, still doing battle with the heat in Tunisia. As Jim said, things have quietened down a lot. The regiment is dug in, recovering not far from the coast in the Bay of Tunis. If you're following us on Twitter, keep your eyes out for a couple of maps we'll put up showing the Tunisian campaign from the 56 Heavy's perspective. These are maps from the war diaries. There's an overlay that Jack might not have seen firsthand, but he'd have known all the code names on it very well. May 24th. I've moved again near the coast this time, right by the Bay of Tunis. Very nice spot. Grand weather now. Went to Enfidivel to see if I could find Fred. Went round the regiment, but no Fred. Saw one or two of the old boys, huh? May 25th. Oh, what a grand spot this is. In a pine wood in the sight of the sea. Going in twice a day. About two miles from Hammamet. Had two air letters last night. Hear that we move again on the 27th, so no rest for the wicked. Two more air letters tonight. Or rather, sea letters. Numbers 25 and 26. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. We do get the impression some of these diary entries are short and to the point because there's no time for writing. Others are concise simply because there's not a lot going on. It's a similar situation in the South Pacific at the moment, but this is the calm before a storm. Major General Oscar Griswold has settled into the daily routine you'd expect for a commanding general. Taking the lead for 14 Corps, he's effectively responsible for coordinating all the activities of the US Army with the Navy and Allied units. That means a lot of full days but also some sleepless nights. 23rd May, 1943. Wrote a letter home. Area bombed once already. A great big fat moon comes up later. Not so good, methinks, for a restful sleep. 24th to 30th May, 1943. Routine inspection and reorganization of service command. No enemy bombing. No moon until way late. Weather bad. Okay, back to Britain now. At the beginning, I mentioned that Allied forces carry out an inordinate number of raids this month, this week in particular, but the battle for airspace isn't a one-way affair. 
Veer Hodgson lives in Notting Hill, which of course was right under the flight path for many devastating Luftwaffe sorties. Air raid sirens are routine countrywide, day and night. Sunday 23rd of May. A week of warnings. Just nuisance raids. But since we'd rather got out of the habit, we have slept rather badly. Monday was fire-watching, so I camped out on the settee. The sirens screamed out. I was up with tin hat, torch, whistle, etc. In no time, Miss M came pelting downstairs. The others did too, and made it known their fire squad was on duty. We got the all clear, but in another hour, we had to leap up again. It's gone on like this all week. There are many empty houses now, and various fire stations have been closed. We heard Chelmsford Cathedral was saved by two fire watchers digging out incendiaries with an axe. A friend of Aunt Winnie's was walking in the country near Breed when she heard a great whirring of wings and thought it was a gigantic bird. To her horror, it was a wounded German plane hopping over the fields, but she did not see it crash. Fancy bucking too and arresting a few German airmen when you were out for an afternoon walk. Right, staying in Britain for a moment, we'll head up to Edinburgh to check in with Julia Blythe. As we know, Julia, or Ma, writes regularly to her son, Flight Lieutenant David Nairn Blythe, who's out in Port Alberta in Canada. David is training to be a navigator, and while he's in the classroom, Ma's keeping him in touch with what's happening in the family. 23rd of May. Dear David, I've just received part of Airgraph from the 5th of May, asking about the size of Jean's shoes. She usually takes four and a half British size, so please don't buy anything smaller. Her feet measure ten inches long and three inches broad without shoes, so perhaps that will be enough to go on. She's all excited at the prospect of a pair of skates. I also received a letter from Aunt Jean by the same post as your aircraft, this time dated 9th of April. She said they were all excited as you were about to pay your first visit to them. I must write to her tomorrow. Now then, I also received a letter from you on Monday, dated 14th of April. You are certainly lucky getting digs at such a low price, but I expect that makes you smoke more. I am glad to hear you are doing so well in your photography. Your marks are very good. Keep it up. You know, you were always anxious to take pictures at school, animals at the zoo and the like, but when you come home, we expect you to be an expert. We're all looking forward to seeing the photos you took at Aunt Jean's. We can't get spools here to take snaps, unfortunately. Your job must be very interesting. It's so varied. Well... We are nearing the end of our Wings for Victory Week. Lease reached its target of £500,000 on Wednesday and Edinburgh her target of £1,000,000 yesterday. The final results should be much higher thanks to our small savings. I took grand to see the Leith Parade on Wednesday afternoon. It was a scorching afternoon. We had a good place opposite the saluting base. She enjoyed the spectacle very much. By the way, do you still write to Mr MacDonald? Joan was hearing that Mr Bruce was coming on leave again. I shall need to close now, as Joan is waiting to take this to the post office. 
hope you are still in the best of health and happy as ever. We are all just fine here. Love, as always, Ma. Hope you're as happy as ever, says Ma. David is happy and quite proud of what he's doing too. That said, while there are still several exams on the horizon, he's not totally focused on his lessons. It sounds as though there's plenty of light entertainment on hand for the men in training, and young Flight Lieutenant Blythe appears to be taking full advantage of it. Dear Ma, You could have knocked me down with a feather when I read your aircraft last week telling me that my letter had been printed in the news. Fame at last. It'll be something worth keeping so that in future years I can look back on this time I've had here. I've had the majority of my final exams now and still have a few to come. I can only hope I've passed each one and I'll be trying to do as well as I can in the exams to come. As you know, when I play, I play hard, but I also work hard too. This course has made me realise how essential physical and mental fitness is for flying crews. Thank goodness for my dance band experiences, which taught me how to endure long and late hours. Otherwise, I may not have been prepared for what they expect me to do here. I've always had a busy time of it since so far back as I can remember, and so it's nothing unusual for me, but what I'm doing now is greater than anything I've ever done, and that makes me prepared to go through hell, fire or water to see it through. My heart is really in this ma. I'd be most unhappy to give it up during the war. I hope that everything is going well at home. I think of you all a lot, and I know I'll be seeing you again soon. I'm glad that Gran is doing okay too. She's a great woman and nothing will ever change my mind about that. Please give my regards to all the folks. Love, David. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading. Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Via Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Wilhelm Maus is read by Alex Figueredo. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. <laughs>